0: You're going to love this. Just love it.
1: Yes, I agree. I totally agree. like a Fox News Close viewer to, you. To, the me, to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you yep stuck in the from Pacifica with Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles amazing. this is the broadcast as heard yes, on KPFK on 90.7 face. FM in LA Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. And out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville. And of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. For another thrilling action packed broadcast. Uh, oh, yes, dear citizens of Kentucky, you lose your right to vote, and you lose your right to vote, and you lose your right to vote. Merry Christmas. Yes, the new Republican governor of Kentucky, Matt Bevan, has just taken office and almost immediately reversed. The restoration of voting rights to former felons that had been instituted by his Democratic predecessor, Governor Steve Bashir. Yes, elections matter. Also, counting votes from those elections and making sure that the results of those elections actually reflect the will of the electorate, that also matters. But as Brad Castlisters know too well, that never happened in the state of Kentucky this past November following the bizarre results of that uh, uh, of that election in the bluegrass state. When uh, Democratic candidate Jack Conway, the popular attorney general, was running against this unpopular Republican candidate, Matt Bevan was leading going into the uh, going into the race it ended up losing in a what was almost a 15 point swing from the pre-election polls to the results that were announced in the state of Kentucky that were counted on computers were tabulated by computers either correctly or incorrectly nobody knows and it's not just because of the touchscreen voting system out in kentucky in some places the paper ballot system which is used by most of kentucky's voters is also not checked those paper ballots are run through a computer they are either right or wrong who knows unless we bother to count the ballots by hand which was never done in kentucky And the Democratic candidate, uh, Jack Conway, despite those uh, almost inexplicable results, maybe they're explicable. Who knows? Who knows if they're correct because they didn't bother to count them. But Jack Conway never asked for a recount, even though he was winning by a big margin going in. Ended up reportedly losing by an even bigger margin and, oddly enough, a whole bunch of Democrats. on The uh, the statewide Democrats that were running below him on the ticket for attorney general, for secretary of state, for state auditor, they all received more votes. They received more votes than the guy at the top of the ticket. Mm, I don't know. Were the results accurate? I don't know. I don't know. And neither do the people of Kentucky because they never bothered to count them. So in uh, in response to that, there is now a Republican governor of Kentucky, either correctly voted by the uh, by the electorate or not. Who knows? But now that he has come into power, he has removed the voting rights for one hundred and forty thousand 140,000 former felons, felons who had served their time in jail but got out, finished their time, served their time to the state— And uh, are still having their voting rights restricted. Those impacted are overwhelmingly African-American and lower, uh, lower income. They had, as I said, already completed their sentences. But now they remain permanently disenfranchised thanks to the new Republican governor who came in. The order by the former Democratic governor was an executive order to allow people who had served their sentences to vote again. That uh, that order excluded those who were convicted of violent crimes, sex crimes, bribery, treason, and so forth. But Republican Governor Matt uh, Bevin, uh, his move on Tuesday night goes against the promises that he made during the campaign to keep the restoration of voting rights in place, the restoration of voting rights by his predecessor. He had told the uh, Insider Louisville news site in November that uh, he supports the automatic restoration of voting rights. I guess he was kidding. I guess he was lying. He wanted to get elected. So he told his people what they wanted to hear. He lied about it, came in, did the opposite. He even told reporters back in November... Uh, at inside uh, Louisville, that he would stand up to his own party on the issue and convince them that uh, restoring these voting rights was the right thing to do. Because back in the uh, in, in the in the Republican majority Senate in Kentucky, the Republicans there had been blocking the restoration of voting rights for years. It, not a lot of states uh, still keep felons who have uh, served their time from being able to vote. Kentucky is one of them. One hundred and forty thousand there. Florida is even more disturbing. About 1.5 million former felons are disallowed from voting in the state of Florida. Charlie Crist had restored their right to vote back when he was governor, even though he was a Republican at the time. And then Rick Scott came in, the new Republican or the newer Republican governor came in and revoked those rights. Because, well, let's face it, the Republican Party hates democracy, period. End of story. They don't like it unless they can control it. And that's what they're trying to do now in the state of Kentucky. And let's also face it, uh, Democrats didn't stand up to them and make them count the votes to make sure the electorate actually won. So uh, thanks to his order, now tens of thousands of Kentuckians will not only lose the opportunity to regain their voting rights, they will also be permanently unable to serve on a jury, run for office, or obtain a vocational license. Bevan offered the reversal, uh, the, the explanation that Bevardoff offered for his reversal is that he believes, quote, it is an issue that must be addressed through the legislature and by the will of the people. Well, how do we know what that will of those people uh, of the people are if the will of the people are not allowed to vote? As one hundred and forty thousand of them aren't. If those hundred and forty thousand had been allowed to vote in November's election, Bevan might not even have won or had been the reported winner. One in five African-Americans in the state are now disenfranchised. Studies have found that ex-felons who have their voting rights restored feel more invested in their communities. They're less likely to end up back in the criminal justice system. Bevin also reversed Governor Bashir's move to raise the state's minimum wage for government workers and contractors to $10.10 an hour. Bevin brought it back down to $7.25. Those people were just making too much damn money at $10 an hour. 800 state workers who had already gotten those raises, they get to keep them. Oh, goody. But new hires will now have to go back to that lower rate, $7.25. In his order, Bevin also hinted that he'd prefer there was no minimum wage at all. Yes, elections have consequences. Have I mentioned that? He also used his new executive power to grant the wish of Kentucky clerk Kim Davis. You remember her. She was the one who refused to follow the law, refused to follow orders from the Supreme Court and the state court and everyone else to allow marriage equality in her uh, in her county where she's the county clerk in Rowan County. Uh, But uh, the new executive order will remove all clerk names from marriage licenses, so that will accommodate her specific religious objections to same sex, same sex marriage. Couples, gay and straight couples alike, will retain the right to marry in Kentucky, uh, thanks to the uh, Supreme Court order. Uh, But now they won't have uh, the name of the county clerk on their marriage license. Uh, This is a clear signal to Kim Davis and her camp that if you object to doing portions of your job, even if you're an elected official, the executive branch will give you an out, says Chris Hartman of the Fairness Campaign. Uh, So there you go. Bevan, by the way, had previously said he believes legalizing same-sex marriage could lead to parents marrying their children. Yes, he actually said that. That is, uh, uh, well, uh, yet another reminder. Yes, elections have consequences. Uh, hey Desi Doyen, I haven't said hello to you so far in this uh, broadcast. How are yes, you? I know. I am. I am here. Are you good and ready for the holidays? <laughs> I am are you so, getting ready for the holidays? So ready. Okay. You have no idea. I know. Well, let me give you some uh, some good news before we get to our interview. Uh, Doctor uh, Joe Rome will be joining us shortly. Formerly of the Clinton administration, years and years ago, energy. Uh, uh, assistant secretary for energy, something like that. And a physicist uh, and a physicist. He's just back from Paris where he was there during the, uh, the big Paris agreement, the climate conference with the UN out there. So we will talk to him shortly. Um, But yeah, let me give you some good news uh, because, uh, yeah, I know we could all use it. Uh, I was going to talk about this Trump supporter who allegedly uh, yelled, I'm going to kill you all outside of a mosque. Well, I will talk about him just just long enough to say they've arrested this bastard. Uh, A white 55 year old guy from Richmond, California, who allegedly threatened to harm the local Muslim community. Uh, Two weeks ago, he had stood outside of a mosque yelling, I'm going to kill you at the worshipers inside the mosque according to the uh, San Jose uh, Mercury News Sounds like a real charmer Yeah, real charmer, but here's the amazing thing. It took 2 weeks to arrest this guy. 2 weeks after he had yelled, "I'm going to kill all of you outside of a mosque." This 55-year-old white guy. Now, can you imagine now as it turns out when they arrested him, they found a, a pipe bombs in his house. A pipe bomb that they exploded at the house. So I'm going to ask that all white uh, Christian men from California come forward and condemn this man and explain what they are going to do to keep such incidents from happening in the future. If you're white, if you're a male, you owe us all uh, an answer to that question. They should be policing their own community. That's right. That's right. They have. uh, We need to blame them. We need to stop white people from being able to immigrate into this country. That's what I say. Because clearly they're a threat. Yeah. Clearly, obviously. But it took two weeks to took arrest him. took two weeks. Can you imagine if a Muslim guy had stood outside of a synagogue? Or? Or a church. Yeah, church. Uh, right? Uh, or, you know, anyway, uh, would it have taken two weeks It'd to throw him in jail? It probably would have jail? taken about 30 seconds if he would have survived that long. But I wasn't supposed to talk about that, oh, Desi I was supposed to give the good news. Remember? The good news, we got distracted with the bad That has happened all year long. I'm sure 2016 will be better. What could possibly go wrong? Here's the good news uh, before we get to our break. More than 8.2 million consumers either signed up for new plans on the Obamacare federal marketplace or renewed their old plans in time for January coverage, Uh, January 1 coverage, according to the Open Enrollment Numbers that were released this week by the Department of Health and Human Services. So, compared to the number of enrollees at this point last year, uh, healthcare.gov healthcare.gov signups are up, up about thirty percent, according to uh, HHS, with two point four million new users on the federal marketplace. That surge comes after HHS announced it was extending its deadline this year. Uh, Until December 17th, because they had an unprecedented amount of traffic on the website and to its call centers. Federal officials also highlighted the increase in young users on the marketplace, which in theory brings down premiums for everyone in the risk pool because young people tend to be healthier. So as of December 17th. Uh, 2.1 million people under the age of 35 had signed up for plans through the federal marketplace. That's about double the amount of young people at this time last year. So Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is moving ahead. It's doing well. It is not a disaster. It is not ruining Christmas. It is not ruining 2015 or 2016. That said, there are still millions of people who are uncovered in uh, who are not covered Uh, with with, health care coverage in large part because of the, uh, what, about 30 states with Republican governors who are keeping the expansion of Medicaid that is built into the Affordable Care Act from taking place. So there are still millions and millions of Americans who do not have coverage because they can't afford it, because those Republican governors uh, are not letting them have Medicaid. And, of course, if we had a single, payer, a, a single payer system akin to the one that Bernie Sanders is calling for, where health care is regarded as a human right for everyone, then we wouldn't have to worry about these stupid private health insurers at all. We could put them out of business because they add absolutely nothing to anybody's health. All they do is write the check, to be frank. They're a middleman. They're a middleman, and we should cut them out. That said, at least we've got millions and millions more people who are now covered than were uh, two years ago before the Affordable Care Act actually kicked in. There are more uh, signing up this year than last year, which hopefully means we'll have uh, healthier people. But once again, it's a reminder. Elections matter. Elections matter. Counting the results of those elections So that we know that the uh, person who's announced the winner is actually the one that the electorate actually wanted to win that election. That would be good, too. Working on it. Got a lot of work ahead of me. All right. Quick break. We're back with Joe Rome right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. At year's end, uh, we've been looking at uh, some good news and bad news, as usual, as we do all year long, frankly. Uh, But there has been no more contrasting mix of good and bad news, uh, as we have seen, frankly, for the environment this year and uh, the fight to curb global warming. Following on the remarkable landmark uh, historic agreement struck in uh, in Paris just weeks ago before between nearly 200 uh, countries to curb global emissions in that fight against climate change. Well, that's some good news. In the meantime, December has been extraordinarily warm across the globe following an extraordinarily warm November, an extraordinarily warm October, September and on and on and on. And, of course, if you watch the mainstream corporate media, you'd have no idea why it's actually that much warmer than it has been in the past. As a matter of fact, uh, it looks like we are on track to have the warmest year on record in 2015. Miles Grant over at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting noted the fact that American media was not telling the American electorate exactly why it was so warm this month. He writes, as wave after wave of record breaking high temperatures grips huge swaths of America, media coverage of the December warmth has rarely been willing to discuss its cause. Of 259 newspaper stories that touched on on December's warmth between December 1 and 14, only seven made the tie to climate change network news coverage he writes has been no more willing to connect the dots of 67 mentions of december's warmth on network news only one talked about the connection to climate change in other words uh unless you listen to bradcast and uh other alternative media you may have no idea why it's so warm you may enjoy it you may be out playing golf uh, but you may have no idea why you should be concerned about it. Uh, here to talk about why you should be so concerned about it and uh, with some good news, I think, at year's end is Joe Rome, editor of Climate Progress, a fellow at American Progress, Center for American Progress. Time magazine called Rome a hero of the environment, and so do we. He was also acting assistant secretary of Energy for energy efficiency and renewable energy in 1997 for the Bill Clinton administration. He holds a PhD in physics from MIT. He's the author of the books Hell and High Water Global Warming, The Solution and the Politics, and What We Should Do, and his newest book, Climate Change What Everyone Needs to Know. Joe Rome, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, listen, you are just back from Paris uh, a week or so ago, as I understand, where nearly 200 countries met in the wake of terror attacks to unanimously agree on a landmark agreement to try and curb greenhouse gas emissions in hopes of keeping global growth in temperatures from climbing no more than two degrees, uh, two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels and maybe even no more than one and a half degrees above pre-industrial level. So I'm interested both in your take on the mo uh, on the mood on the ground in Paris throughout that process as you were there and after the agreement was struck. and then we can talk about some of the specifics uh, of the agreement and and your thoughts on that so what what was it like to be in Paris during this uh, landmark event
0: um well it was it was quite exciting. Um, I mean, first of all it, it you know there was a very heavy uh, armed uh, police and security forces, you can imagine, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that really, you know, uh, I think made everyone understand that the, you know, the A France played a, uh, placed a very high priority on having things go smoothly, um, and you know the result was was uh, I think as as impressive as anyone could have expected. One thing people have to remember who aren't familiar with the UN process is that the 195 nations that are there, they have to agree on the final text unanimously. Uh, You know, you can imagine trying to get 100 people in the U.S. Senate to agree on any substantive thing unanimously. It would be impossible. And we're talking about getting China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, the United States, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of different countries agreeing uh, on a plan going forward. So I think... What, what they agreed to um, was, was quite impressive. And as you say, the, the, one of the key points was uh, to end this myth that two degrees centigrade is somehow a goal or a target. Mm. Um, they changed the language to uh, stabilize, quote, well below two degrees centigrade. Right. Uh, to make clear, the two degrees centigrade is the keep away sign, you know, stay as far below... Two degrees centigrade as you can, and in this case, they even explicitly said, "You know, we certainly would like to try for one point five degrees centigrade." Now, you know, uh, we have a long, long way to go before uh, anyone can claim that we're on that trajectory. But you know, uh, of the hundred ninety-five countries, over one hundred and eighty came in with very serious commitments to reduce or or. Um, limit uh, greenhouse gas emissions, Mm -hmm. Uh, and as a result, this really is the first truly global treaty where the developed countries and the developing countries all came to say, we're all going to contribute to this effort to avoid catastrophe.
1: And and Joe, what happened? Uh, I know leading into the conference, uh, you know, the question was about two degrees, as you mentioned. Is that going to be enough? Is it realistic? Even if we keep it to two degrees, what will actually happen uh, you know, to the climate? And then throughout the course of this uh, two-week uh, conference out there, suddenly people started talking about 1.5 degrees. That made it into the... Uh, agreement that it didn't seem like it was even possible to talk about 1.5 degrees before the conference, and by the end, that actually makes it into this treaty. What happened during the course of those two weeks? It seems like whatever happened was good news, but how did that happen that we suddenly started talking about 1.5 degrees for the first time in ever?
0: Well, you know, uh, the two things I think happened one is beforehand, it was increasingly clear. Uh, from just looking at the science, that there's nothing safe about 2 degrees centigrade. And, you know, what we've learned in the last 18 months with the, with the instability in the West Antarctic ice sheet and all the extreme weather events that we're already seeing and the brutal droughts we're seeing in this country and elsewhere, that, that we're already at dangerous Impacts, and we're only at one degree centigrade warming. So I think that reality did set in. Now, you know, many of the small island uh, uh, nations, the ones that are going to be submerged mm-hmm. uh, with just a few feet of sea level rise, they have always been pushing for one point five degrees centigrade. And and what you had was some big countries, including the U.S., ultimately deciding to join them. Um, now, you know, one has to be clear here: the the it is easy to say, our goal, you know, uh, we're going to try to do better than 2 degrees centigrade and get all the way down to 1.5. Actually doing it, you know, it would require a level of effort that, that none of the countries here have, have put on the table yet. Yet, um, yet, yet. yet uh, and, and that was one of the points, uh, uh, is that all of the commitments that the countries came to the table with, they all end. In 2025, or in most cases, 2030, um, and if you want to get to two degrees centigrade, uh, if you want to limit to two degrees centigrade mm-hmm. total warming, all the planet's emissions, uh, net emissions, have to go to zero by the end of the century. So pretty much every country is going to have to go to zero, and that's going to take, you know, you know, every five or ten years countries are going to have to come back and make stronger commitments and that ratcheting became part of the treaty too. that that every five years there's going to be a review and ratchet people are going to review how they have done in meeting their previous commitment and then they're going to have to ratchet up their their commitment uh, to keep us uh, you know as close as possible uh... or or beneath the two degrees centigrade uh, pathway. So that's the you know that's sort of the the main point is is that you know this is a start of a process. This is not the end. We're not done. We're nowhere near done. This is people should think of this as as the very beginning. I was describing this as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. You know <laughs> we have a lot more uh, battles and. Uh, ahead of
1: us well you mentioned joe zero net emissions by the end of the century and you sort of blew past that yeah i've heard that phrase a lot are we talking about z- zero net growth in emissions or are we talking about zero emissions and we're going to have to get rid a of period of all burning of all fossil fuels by the end of this century
0: yeah it is it is zero net emissions and and you know people need to understand this point. I I have a new book. I have to send it uh, to you. It's called Climate Change What Everyone Needs to Know. Oh good. Uh, for Oxford University Press. It is it is a primer. It's all Q&A format and and it just explains uh every aspect of climate change and climate solutions and why people need to know about it. But I have one of the questions is, you know, mm-hmm. what is the biggest source of confusion? about climate action and the biggest source is is that we have to take emissions global emissions to zero you can't uh, uh, un, uh, you know as long I mean, people need to th- can think of of the co2 levels like the level of water in your bathtub and what comes out of the faucet is the annual emissions and as long as what comes out of the faucet is more than what goes down the drain, mm-hmm. uh, then your levels are going to keep rising. And so if you want uh, the sinks of the earth, the land and the ocean, to be able to actually start soaking up CO2 at, out of the air, you have to reduce global emissions 80 to 90%. So that's why we talk about going down to zero.
1: Wow. So we're talking uh, no uh, internal combustion cars, no power, no coal-fired or, or natural gas-powered power plants by the end of the century, period. No emissions. Renewable energy for the entire globe is, is now the goal, and not just the goal for the end of the century, but what scientists say we must do in order to continue uh, th- having a livable planet. I- am I understanding that correctly?
0: Yes, yes. Now, you know, this doesn't mean the end of the internal combustion engine, uh, uh, because you can, in theory, you can, you know, have biofuels, uh, okay. which, which pull during their growth, uh, during the growth of the, bi- growth of the biomass, they pull CO2 out of the air, and mm-hmm. then uh, over, when you burn them, they put it back. It is difficult to do that. And we really haven't found a great biofuel yet. Certainly corn ethanol or any crop based uh, biofuel is not a good idea because we don't even, you know, feed the people we have on the planet today, let alone, you know, when we add uh, another three billion people. So, um, uh, but you are absolutely correct. We, we are talking about uh, the end of the fossil fuel uh, driven industrial revolution that began uh, 250 or so years ago, and that's why, uh, the, you know, in some sense, this is such a big deal because you literally had every single significant country in the world, large and small, rich and poor, all sign on to this agreement, which recognizes, yeah, we 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 uh, the the age of fossil fuels uh... is is coming to an end it's not going to disappear tomorrow Mm -hmm. and it's not going to disappear in twenty years but we've already seen that it's probably the case that global coal use is at its peak or near its peak and many people think global oil use will be at or near its peak within a decade or so uh... and yes and and as you know there's been this absolute revolution in clean energy technologies whether it is solar or wind uh, or efficient technologies like LED lighting, or whether it's alternatives to oil-based transportation, such as electric cars and the batteries they use, the Teslas. Uh, and I think you're going to see, uh, as a result of this treaty and and the commitments the countries have made, a an even greater acceleration of of these clean energy technologies into the marketplace.
1: G- Joe Rome, uh, given the uh, Well, I guess the historic nature of the uh, of the agreement struck in Paris just days earlier. Are you surprised? I think maybe I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Are you surprised that just three days after the agreement wrapped up in Paris, CNN holds a Republican presidential debate? on uh, on on foreign relations and foreign policy and national security and does not ask a single question about this agreement that took place just days earlier the largest such agreement ever struck on the globe and and something that our own military has said over and over again uh is directly related to national security i i, I actually i want to ask are, are you surprised that cnn didn't ask but i think i know that answer so let me put it this way uh which i think is sharper is it journalistic malpractice that cnn did not bother to bring up that point uh during that republican debate
0: oh i think i think it it definitely is and and particularly because as you know they were criticized uh as were all the major uh, media for for the same exact thing 4 years ago and i believe mm-hmm. 4 years before that they they haven't been asking the questions as you say you know, we just had this historic agreement. We, this is the hottest year on record. Um, and, and uh, you know, the science is getting more more worrisome, and the solutions are, are at hand. So, yes, this is the story of the century. And, and uh, you know, in fact, one of the points I make in, in, in the new book is that, you know, we've reached the point where everyone needs to know about climate change, regardless of their politics, simply because it's going to affect them and their family as much in the next 25 years as the internet did in the last 25 years and people who are informed are going to be the smart money and people who aren't informed are going to be the other kind of money so it is incumbent on the media to 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 raise this issue now it's all, as you know I mean since you know you, you run your show and you know how lonely it is out there on the <laughs> airwaves for shows dedicated yes. to to uh, sensible uh, reporting on on you know the environment that i i mm-hmm. think it 's safe to say that 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 you know mainstream outlets like c n n you know they don 't really get it they they don 't get the centrality of this issue and how it 's going to grow and grow and, and You know, over the next 10, 15 years, it will come to dwarf all other issues.
1: Joe, do they not get it or, as you suggest, or do they get it, but they just don't care because they think they're running a Republican uh, presidential uh, debate and they only need to ask about things that Republican voters think they care about? In other words, are they tailoring it to what the Republicans want to talk about instead of what Americans need to know about?
0: Well, you know, I, 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 you know, why exactly they have made this, this journalistic error, I, I can't say. I tend to think it's just because th- they, they, they think this is just one of many issues and not, you know, uh, the, the, the existential uh, issue of our time. And uh, because if they truly understood, you know, the reality uh, uh, of the situation, uh, then, then of course they would ask questions. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I understand, uh, as you know, as well as anybody, that that, that, that people are exceedingly interested in in short term threats uh, like terrorism, and 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 they should be. But you know, the the and I don't even think there's a point in comparing terrorism and climate change. One of them is an immediate threat, and it has one set of things you you hopefully do to deal with it and the other is is the transcendent long-term threat facing not just the nation but the whole world and it can never you know it has to be a top priority no matter what your other Mm -hmm. uh you know shorter term priorities are and you know it, it is it is up to the major media outlets to raise this now if they don't you know unfortunately that is is going to leave uh, leave it up to you know the 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 candidates themselves, and uh, you know on on the Republican side, there's no great desire to talk about this issue. Uh, that's the whole this whole meme. I'm not a scientist is is their lame way of of saying I don't want to talk about it, um, as if only scientists are the only people who could talk about it. Um, but so that's going to be it's going to be incumbent on 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 Democrats or or you know those in the Republican Party who do understand the importance of this issue to talk about it uh, during campaigns, because it, it it is a very, very big deal.
1: Well, I, yeah, I, I, it is. I, I just I am having a very, very difficult time giving them a pass saying that, oh, they don't understand it when, you know, you've got a, a debate on foreign policy and foreign relations. And just three days earlier, the largest global treaty ever struck. Struck, if nothing else, it seems like you talk about it uh, just to get a sense of how those candidates will deal with this, uh, with this treaty. How they would have dealt with all of these uh, foreign nations, the largest uh, collection of world leaders to ever come together, even on you know on that level, on a foreign relations level. It's still just stunning to me that CNN either doesn't get it or doesn't want to get it. Uh, And I suppose it's no more stunning that ABC News either doesn't get it or doesn't want to get it because they didn't ask the Democratic candidates uh, during that recent presidential debate about the Paris Agreement at all either. We know that Democrats support that agreement, uh, but it's just amazing that uh, mainstream corporate media just doesn't really get it across the board. Anyway, i got to take a quick break, and we'll come back with with more with Dr. Joe Rome of Climate Progress. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, your, uh, well, let's say your shot at Bill Gates recently. And I want to ask you about Dr. James Hansen, uh, one of the fathers of uh, modern climate crisis awareness, who says the Paris Agreement is a, quote, fraud we'll talk about that and much more straight ahead with Joe Rome I'm Brad Friedman this is your Bradcast stay tuned <laughs> We can only hope it has been a long December and a long year. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. We're speaking with Joe Rome, PhD, founder and editor of ClimateProgress.org and a uh, former assistant secretary of energy in the Bill Clinton administration. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, well, you you blasted Bill Gates, sort of, and you offered us some good news. I want to get to both of those points, but very quickly, we had uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Michael Mann on this show uh, uh, recently, uh, creator of the infamous hockey stick graph showing temperatures rising along with the release of carbon into the atmosphere over the past century. I asked him about this, but I want to get your take on James Hansen, Dr. James Hansen, NASA's former chief scientist, Instrumental in the late 80s, obviously, in alerting the world to the problem of of global warming and greenhouse gases in the first place. He described the Paris Agreement, after it was struck, as, quote, a fraud. He says because it fails to put a global price on the release of carbon into the atmosphere. So, like I said, I asked Dr. Mann about this. I'd love to get your thoughts on this, uh, Joe Rome. James Hansen calls the Paris Agreement a fraud.
0: Yeah, I you know, as a scientist, uh, uh, you know, as, as a guy who, who has been prescient uh, and, and write longer about the science side of things, I have great respect for him. And, and uh, you know, on my website, Climate Progress, you know, have have probably written about what he's said uh, as much as anybody. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that, uh, and I'm sympathetic to what he's saying in, in the following sense. If the world were, in fact, truly serious about 1.5 degrees centigrade, then uh, their actions don't match their rhetoric. Now, I I don't think that rises to the level of the language that he uses in terms of criticism. Um,
1: Some of the language I can't even repeat on air, actually. He was that strong about
0: it. you know, again, when you look at the fact that, that, that A, you need 195 countries to agree on something unanimously, mm-hmm. and B, we, we are talking about, you know, the biggest tragedy of the commons problem in, in human history. And, and unlike so many other, you know, issues involving pollution, this one isn't even about, uh, uh, this is about things we do now are going to, you know, ruin things for our children in a few decades. So, it, you know, this is a, this is a great challenge, and, 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 you know, this is the first time in, in history that, that, that the developing countries have come to the table with the developed countries to make serious commitments. And, you know, uh, is, is it enough to, to avert catastrophe? Uh, what, what is, you know, uh, as I said, these commitments all end in 2030, and people are going to have to keep coming back. Year, you know, every five years, and ratcheting up their commitments, but I, I don't think it's productive to, uh, you know, to take what what has really been a a unprecedented uh, uh, effort by the nations of the world to to come to grips with this uh, and, and just call it like a total failure because it definitely wasn't.
1: Well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it it wasn't in uh it, well, it certainly wasn't. That said, I think it's also helpful in one regard to still have one guy out there, that guy out there, and he's not the only one obviously, but you know, someone with a loud voice however they're doing it, continuing to push us, to continue, you know, to say this is not enough. We have to keep going and even if it means disparaging the work by saying it's a fraud, we need to do more. I think that's a, a, a sort of a lonely voice, but a, an important voice in one sense, for whatever that take is worth.
0: Uh, well, and and to, to his credit, Hanson uh, was the guy as much as anybody sure. who not only raised awareness on uh, climate change, but who insisted that the target should be 1.5 and not 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was his paper, uh, quite literally, where he said, you know, uh, particularly if you're looking at sea level rise, that we'd better keep things below 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is to say 350 parts per million. It was that paper um, six or seven years ago mm-hmm. that led, you know, Bill McKibben to launch 350.org, and it was the movement. Uh, 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 by McKibben and, you know, Hansen and the mm-hmm. others as much as anything that, that has put 1.5 back into play.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. You're right. I mean, he has been that voice for a long time. So, And even, you know, when he comes out and says, yes, it is so bad, we need to go to nuclear... Uh, That, I think, is important, too. I completely disagree with him in that I don't want to go to nuclear for any reason, but the fact that somebody like him who understands the dangers of nuclear is willing to say, yes, that's what we need to do, that's how bad this is, I think that's a very important voice to hear, whether we want to hear it or not. Uh, Joe, you said while you were in Paris, you wrote... Uh, Here at the Paris Climate Talks, all of the major sticking points towards a global climate deal are really about money, especially financing for clean energy projects. This is a problem the world's billionaires could fix, you wrote, if they weren't being led down the wrong path by Bill Gates. Well, meow, Joe, taking a shot at Bill Gates like that. Why, uh, uh, Why that shot? He came out with 20 of the world's richest billionaires, as you noted. Uh, to say to create a breakthrough energy coalition. Uh, so why are you so critical of Bill Gates and those other billionaires uh, who are focusing on clean tech research and development?
0: Well, you know, first let me say I'm a big fan of clean tech research and development. And, in fact, when I was at the Department of Energy and ran the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, I was running the largest clean tech research and development program in the world Mm -hmm. at the time is about a billion dollars, although we didn't just do research and development. We did research and development and demonstration and deployment. And we could have used a lot more money back then. The issue for us right now is that while R&D is always useful, the thing that is much more needed and useful now is to actually finance the clean tech that we have at a trillion dollar scale and that is something that governments have difficulty doing the U, the u.s congress here won't approve uh, such deployment programs for the federal government but the billionaires they could really go a long way towards you know helping countries like india have the big choice right now and they said so at paris which is we're going to build coal plants and if you want us to build renewable plants we're going to build a lot of those but if you really want us to curtail coal you're going to have to provide us a lot of investment capital
1: so you're uh, you're suggesting so, that yeah go
0: ahead and and so you know what the billionaires could be doing and i'm hoping that people will sort of talk to them about this is, is say as much as r d is valuable what we could really use are things like loan guarantees, so that uh, you know countries like India can get uh, uh, capital at an affordable price? Because I was at one of the uh, sessions in 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 Paris, and this guy from India said, "You know, renewable projects in India have a sixteen percent interest rate associated with them." Now, wow. as you know, renewable projects are very capital intensive. They don't have an f- annual fuel bill like your coal plant or mm-hmm. gas plant. Their entire cost is up front, and then they pay for themselves over time by saving you the fuel costs. So anything that's very capital-intensive, its, it's total cost is going to be very, very dependent on the rate at which you borrow money to pay for that capital. And 16 is an outrageous number. If, if the world's billionaires were to create a loan guarantee fund, then they could mm. guarantee those loans and people would come in with much cheaper capital and you would see vastly more renewables in India. And, and you know, the, the billionaires would get their money back um, and then they could keep doing it again as in a revolving fund. so
1: and that could be done today as you you point out, you know the price of renewables has come uh, has just plummeted over recent years. Uh, and rather than go out as they seem to be doing, uh, you know and looking for some you know secret uh, carbon sucking machine or something or you know obviously we have to continue. I don't mean to demean research and development. But you suggest in your piece at Climate Progress, Joe, that we have the technology. We have it now. It's just a matter of getting it out, uh, getting it deployed, and that these billionaires could be focusing on that instead of some, you know, fantastic carbon-sucking machine that we're going to develop over the next uh, 20 or 50 or 100 years.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know, clearly the world, in its need to go down to zero by the end of the century, is going to be needing all sorts of advanced technology so like i said it's not a waste of money to to put money into mm-hmm. to clean tech um, But innovation now comes as much from the mass deployment as it does from stuff in the laboratory and as you say I, this whole notion of breakthroughs i think is is a mistake you know edison you know thomas edison himself knew you know that we have this limitless resource of sunlight i don't i don't think it you know what is it the amount of sunlight that hits the earth in an hour would be enough to power the entire planet for a year so right. there is you know uh, this this limitless resource and it doesn't i think take a genius to figure out that a substantial fraction of the energy that we're going to be running the world on, uh, you know, particularly by the time we get to mid-century, it is is going to be uh, you know solar based in one form or another, and we have brought down the cost of photovoltaics, you know, ninety nine percent since mm-hmm. nineteen uh, the late nineteen seventies, and and in fact we brought it down eighty percent, you know, in the last several years alone. So the advances continue, but but they are predicated on uh... you 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 double production and then prices drop twenty percent or whatever it is that's Mm -hmm. the learning curve the learning curve is built around uh, accelerated deployment and that's why it is as important and and you know in the next ten or fifteen years is when we're going to decide whether india is going to go the dirty coal route and make it impossible to achieve two degrees centigrade or are they going to leapfrog what the U.S. and even China did and go straight to clean tech and, and serve as a model that shows the other developing countries that, that you don't need a carbon in order to be a rich, uh, developed country?
1: All right. We've already talked about the plummeting prices in renewable energy. We've talked about the fact that 2015 is going to be most likely the hottest year on record, surpassing 2014, the previous hottest year on record so there's a mix of good and bad news but let's end the year with some good news Joe Rome um, for the first time uh, carbon emissions have have actually gone down a tick it seems over the past year uh, the, the f- that's the first time that's ever happened I think when the globe was not in a global economic recession. Uh, are we at a true emissions plateau, as you uh, described it? Are we really flattening out here? And can we look forward to emissions now finally coming down? Have we finally bent bent the curve, so to speak, when it comes to carbon emissions as you see it?
0: Yeah, I think the answer is it, it appears that we have, and it's going to take another couple of years to be sure. But, yes, we, we as you say, uh, last year... Global CO2 emissions only went up 0.6 uh, percent, uh, and this year they are on track to go down 0.6 percent or more. And that is driven uh, primarily, uh, not exclusively, but primarily by China's reversal on coal-based growth, and, and China mm-hmm. is going to reduce coal consumption by about 4 percent this year, and, and you know, their very polluted cities have motivated stronger and stronger action. And, you know, we published a report at the Center for American Progress about the, the accelerated uh, uh, transition away from coal that we expect uh, in China. And if you look at all the things that they have committed to do, the massive ramp-up in renewables, a carbon pricing system, Uh, giving renewables a preference in the order in which they're used on the electric grid. All of these things uh, uh, are going to continue a a steady drop, I believe, for the foreseeable future uh, in China's coal use. And that, uh, coupled with what the U.S. and the European Union is already doing to reduce emissions, I think will at least equalize the growth that you're seeing in India and some other countries. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if the world does deliver on the promises that were made leading up to Paris, then, yes, I, I think we're certainly at an inflection point. We had rapid growth of CO2 emissions since the year 2000, driven uh, in significant amount by, by China. And I think that growth rate of 2 to 3% per year is now going to drop to under 1% per year. And and it's entirely possible that that it is going to be uh, roughly flat. I I think it may be too, a little early to know that for certain, but I did write an article saying, you know, we we could be plateauing. Uh, I don't expect we're going to see any more of the big leaps uh, that we have uh, seen before. And, um, you know, uh, change happens slowly. Until it happens quickly, and, and uh, I, I, I tend to think that that we have now the, uh, entered the the phase of, of of much more rapid change than people
1: expected. Well, let's hope we are into the quickly phase. Uh, e- even after all of these years of Republicans telling us that China will absolutely never, ever, ever do anything to curb their emissions, now it looks like, oh, what do you know? They're curbing their emissions, and it's actually bending the global curve. That's some good news. I'll take it. Let's end the year uh, with, with that thought. Joe Rome, editor of Climate Progress, author of the new book that you should get for your children and grandchildren because they may need to refer to it, Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know. Joe, always uh, helpful and uh, great to talk to you at, at year's end. I look forward to doing it again in 2016.
0: Oh, me too.
1: Thank you, brother. All right, a quick program note. Tomorrow, it's our very special broadcast holiday special. That's right, revisiting some of our very first broadcasts originally heard, originally broadcast way back in the 1930s and 1940s. That's right, really, tomorrow. If you aren't old enough to have heard them the first time, be sure to tune in tomorrow for our rare visit to classic broadcast radio shows from yesteryear and from the broadcast radio theater players, including our special Christmas episode from Smack Dab in the middle of World War Two. Well, I remember it just like it was yesterday. We'll be off uh, for a few days next week for the holidays. But our friend Nicole Sandler from RadioOrNot.com will be ably holding down the fort until we return in the new year, be nice to her while we're gone. Yes, I'm talking to you. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other this year, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you'll give us a an excellent review. My thanks to Desi Doyan, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to Joe Rome of Climate Progress. Uh, for today's show. And Desi Doyen, my thanks to you for, uh, well, for all year long. Uh, it's been a, a hell of a year. Um, so thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Oh, and thank you for uh, a great year. Are, are you ready for a, a holiday break?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: I figured you were. Uh, and also my thanks again to those of you who have supported our non-commercial, non-corporatized, very independent work that we do here uh, with a donation at bradblog.com slash Donate. It is greatly appreciated, particularly at year's end. So thank you for that. Uh, I know our move from a weekly program to a daily show over the past year has has been a bit of a change of pace for Bradblog.com readers in particular. But so many of you have been so supportive. I just wanted to take a quick moment here to thank all of you for that support as we've changed our rhythm a bit over the past eight months or so here and also, especially, thanks to all of our affiliate partners out there for your fantastic encouragement. Uh, and even to those new affiliate partners that are now working to come on board in the new year. I am looking forward to new announcements on that front in early 2016. All right. Don't forget, to tune in for our very special broadcast Holiday Special. We will be back with you soon. You can find me, as ever, on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog, and you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Peace and good luck, world.